let me start by praying for us. Heavenly Father, um, we're thankful for your presence here. We're thankful that you're good and that you love us, and we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for baptism, for the the sign um, of our faith, of our salvation through, through Christ. Uh, Lord, I pray that today you would illuminate your word for us, that you would make it alive. Uh, Lord, speak through me, and may there be less of me and, and more of you. I pray that you'd be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Um, here at Village Church, uh, as, as David mentioned, we've been going through a lot of, a lot of changes over the last few months, and we've decided, the leaders of Village Church have decided, to revisit what our mission, vision, and values are. And, and God's basic mission for the church hasn't changed and won't change, uh, but we're rethinking how we articulate it. So, here, breaking news uh, right here today. Uh, the new vision of Village Church is, is to, or, or the newly articulated vi- vi- uh, mission of Village Church is to embody the love of Jesus in East Atlanta to embody the love of Jesus in East Atlanta. Um, And that's easy to say, much harder to do. It's easy to say uh, and much harder to even explain what does it look like for us to embody the love of Jesus. So this sermon series that we've been in, which we've called Love Walked Among Us, which is titled after this book, which I highly recommend to all of you. If you want a copy, there's copies for free out in the lobby. But the purpose of this sermon series is to look at the life of Jesus, to look at the things he did and the things he said. Uh, And our hope is that this has a couple of of effects on us. One is that we would read the stories of Jesus, that we would experience his love for us in new ways. And as we experience his love for us, that it would change the way we love our neighbors, both inside and outside the church. I think it's easy for us uh, to lose sight of the fact that Jesus was real. Uh, I don't know if this was strictly limited to the 80s, but if you grew up in the church in the 80s, there was, in every Sunday school classroom, there was a felt board. You guys know what felt boards are? Kids, do you know what felt boards are? And for whatever reason, every Sunday school curriculum had these little cartoonish cutouts of biblical characters. They were all white, by the way, which is historically inaccurate. Uh, and they were cartoons, and you would put these little felt, uh, these little paper characters up on the felt to, to tell the, the story. And it was good. It was good to tell the story, to learn the, the stories of Jesus. But, but we are at risk uh, of having a two-dimensional vision of, of who Jesus is. We're at risk of having a flat, fable version of Jesus. And we forget that Jesus was a, a real, living human being. And that the characters that we read about in the Bible were, were living human beings who had real relationships with people, who felt real feelings the same way you and I do. But the other thing that it's important for us to keep in mind uh, is less physical and more spiritual, which is that Jesus still lives. And this is what we celebrated in the baptism today and we've sung about today, that Jesus still lives. And the key to our faith is to remember that the God who demonstrated his, the, the love for people in scriptures, the real God, the real Jesus that, that demonstrated love for people in, in scriptures is still ministering to us the same way today. We can experience his presence now. 
today by the power of the Holy Spirit. And out of our experience with Christ, we can love others. That is, as we love, as we receive his love, as we experience his presence, as we experience his work in our lives, we can be his presence and his work in the world. That's what it means to embody the love of Jesus. So, that's what we're going to look at today as we dig into the scriptures. Uh, what does it mean to be, what does it mean for us to be a friend to people who are in sorrow? What does it mean for us to comfort each other? What does it mean for us to comfort our neighbors? In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. I'm going to read it again. There's two points here, right? God comforts us in all our affliction so that we can comfort those in any affliction with the comfort that we've received. So there's two key questions for us to ask here, right? How are we comforted by Jesus in times of affliction? When we're feeling sorrowful, when we're feeling sad, when we're feeling down, we're feeling in the pit of despair, how do we receive Jesus' comfort? And then secondly, how do we take that comfort and offer it to others? That's what we're going to look at today. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm bad at these things, at both of these things. Uh, I am not good at receiving comfort from the Lord or from other people, and I'm not very good at extending comfort to other people. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you a little bit more later uh, about my story and maybe why that's true. Uh, and I'll tell you about, a little bit about God's grace on me uh, in times when I have been able to extend comfort. Uh, but hold on for that. Um, so empathy, empathy is a, a popular topic these days in our culture. Um, in some ways, in- empathy is viewed as an antidote for shame. It's an antidote for toxic self-centeredness that plagues us, that plagues our culture. Um, if you look, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a literary magazine, an online literary magazine called Bitter Southerner, uh, and they make and sell these flags and t-shirts that say, practice radical empathy. The bookstore across the street, Bookish, has a flag in their, in their window that says, practice radical empathy. Um, and there's something beautiful about that. Um, I, I mean, I think this is a, 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 something in our culture. When we see things like this in our culture, that resonate with biblical truth, we should, we should affirm them. And I think this is one of those things. Uh, 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 something that our culture has seen, uh, a, a broken place in our culture that, that people are trying to fix in some way, um, we, should, we should celebrate that. So um, there's a, uh, somebody you guys may have heard of, Brene Brown. She's a, a popular uh, speaker and writer, She's a, a researcher. She doesn't necessarily come from a faith perspective, but, um, but I think she captures um, the popular imagination in many ways, and, and she uh, is very influential, influential in our culture. And this is what she says about empathy. She says, When someone's kind of in a deep hole, and they shout out from the bottom, and they say, I'm stuck. It's dark. I'm overwhelmed. And then we look, and we say, hey, and we climb down, and we say, I know what it's like down here. You're not alone. 
That's empathy. Now, our default is not that. My default is not that. My default is sort of a cheap sympathy that stays at the top of the hole and waves down to the bottom, maybe toss some food down, and I'll say, I'm sorry you're down in that pit. Uh, now, Brene, I don't know if Brene Brown did this or someone else did this, but there's this really cool animation of that description. So when you get home, Google search Brene Brown empathy, and there's an, there's an animated version of that where this big fluffy bear climbs down into this hole with this other little animal uh, and sits with the animal in the hole. And then this giraffe comes and waves from the top and says, hey, no, I'm not coming down. You want a sandwich? So, so Google the video. Um, so Brene Brown says this. She says, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice. Because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. So there's a cost to empathy. There's a cost for me to be empathetic. So I, I have to get in touch with the sorrow inside myself in order for me to step into your sorrow. Now, I, I said our culture is sort of captivated by this idea of empathy, but Jesus is the perfect picture of empathy, isn't he? Jesus gets down into the pit with us, but he doesn't just sit there with us. He makes a way to bring us back to the top. So what if we, as the church, what if we, as his followers, were able to get down into the pit with people and offer them a way out? Not just be there with them. It's important to sit and be there with them, but not just be there with them, but to point them to the way out. So with that, let's turn to our, our passage for the, today. Uh, we're going to look at the story of, uh, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, uh, but our focus isn't going to be on that, on that one instance, although we'll reference it, but it's, it's more about how he interacts, how Jesus interacts with Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary. So as I read this, uh, first I want to give you some context, but, but I also want you to use your imagination. I want you to step into the story you can close your eyes if you need to, uh, but, but remember that this is real, that these are real people, and this is, these are real events that happen. So use your imagination. Imagine what it would be like to, to be there. Uh, so let me give you a little context. So Jesus is friends with this family from a town called Bethany. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. So Jesus and his disciples, they walked around all over the place. They walked around all over Israel, right? And on multiple occasions, they stopped in Bethany and had dinner with this family. And this family is made up of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother and sister. And they appear a few times in the gospel. So, so we know these, these are important people. These are people with texture and character. These are real people that Jesus interacted with regularly. These are good friends of Jesus's. Uh, now, you may not think of Jesus as having friends. You think about him having followers and disciples. These are his friends. And we learn that Lazarus, the brother, is really, really sick. Like, like he's going to die sick on his deathbed. Um, and I imagine uh, that this is an untimely death. This is not an old age death where he's lived a full life. Like this is the middle of his prime. Again, I'm using my imagination here. I'm guessing he's about Jesus' age, late 20s, early 30s. 
And again, using my imagination, his older sisters, Mary and Martha, are beside themselves. They're distraught that their brother is dying, and they don't know what to do. Um, But these sisters, they know that Jesus loves their brother. They know Jesus loves their brother, and they know that Jesus can do something about his sickness. They know, I don't know if they've seen Jesus heal people, but they know Jesus can heal people. So with this combination, they send words to Jesus. They send a messenger to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, the one that you love is sick. The one that you love is sick. I don't think they're trying to manipulate Jesus in any way, but they know Jesus loves their brother, and they know that Jesus can do something about it. And when the gospel writer, John, says, the one you love, Jesus, that's, that's, it's important. It's important because John, the gospel writer, he refers to himself that way. He frames his own identity on Jesus' love for him. So it's profound that this is Jesus' close friend who he loves that's sick. So with that, let me read this, the passage, starting in verse 4 of chapter 11. When Jesus heard that Mary and Martha's message, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now pause a second. Going to Bethany in Judea was dangerous for Jesus. The last time he was there, the Jews tried to kill him. They tried to stone him. And so the disciples remind Jesus of this and say, are you sure you want to go to Judea? It's dangerous there. And Jesus tells them, Lazarus has has died. We need to go. And so skipping ahead to verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she, Mary, heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. 
When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. So you've got these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they couldn't be more different from each other, right? Uh, Now, my family, we have three girls. I have three daughters, and two of them are twins. Uh, And one of them is waving her hand over there. And uh, all three of our girls are very different. But twins in particular are really, like, they're a unique picture into the difference between nature and nurture. Our twins are not identical, so they're not genetically identical, but they've basically had the same inputs for their whole lives, right? They've been together almost every day of their lives. they're, They're 10 plus years old now. So for over 10 years, they have seen each other, I think, every day of their lives. But they're different people altogether. And they, my twins, share a room that's sort of like two rooms combined into one that has two distinct sides. And the two sides of their room depict their, their difference completely. One of, the, one of the sides is like neat and tidy and everything has its place. The other side looks like a tornado went through there and all the clothes and all the mess. And I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna like give away whose is whose, but, but one of them is in the back in the nursery and the other one is here waving her hand. Uh, I don't know if that, if that, if that gives it away. Uh, but, but all of our kids are incredibly different, right? They interact with the world in different ways and they receive love in different ways. Um, and so we have to parent them differently. Whether we do that well or not is, a, is an open question, but, uh, but, but they're different children. Um, uh, this is the, the way that, that Jesus relates to Mary and Martha. They are different people, and Jesus relates to them differently. They approach Jesus differently, and he responds to them each differently. Um, so we have, a, we have a picture into the character of these two women um, elsewhere in Scripture. In Luke 10, you guys might remember the story when Jesus comes to dinner at their house. Uh, this is probably earlier, an earlier time than, than when Lazarus died. Uh, but, th- but there's a little story that, that is told in, in Luke chapter 10 about this. So Martha welcomes Jesus into her house, and Mary, the sister, sits at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. Now this is not a normal thing for a woman in the first century to sit at the feet of a teacher, but that's what Mary does. And Martha, the scriptures describe, is distracted with much serving. So she is busy about the house, taking care of the guests, worried about all all of the things that are happening related to Jesus coming to dinner at their house, the teacher coming to dinner at their house. 
And Martha complains to Jesus about her sister. She says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And Jesus corrects Martha gently, but says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So fast forward to the passage we're talking about today. Jesus is approaching these same women, and their character comes through in the way that they approach Jesus. They're both distraught at the loss of their brother. They're devastated. But the way they approach Jesus is very different, and the way that he responds to them is very different. So first, Martha. Martha's a talker. She's a mover. She's a doer. She's not afraid to speak her mind, obviously, about her sister or about anything else. And she runs to Jesus with a question, with a challenge. Now, we can't read the tone of her voice into the scriptures. Uh, I tried to read it with a tone. We don't know what her tone was, but, but again, using my imagination, I, I read her question or her, her, her comments as a challenge. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I mean, she's basically saying, you could have stopped this from happening, but you didn't. He's been in the tomb four days at this point. We thought you were our friend. But she does demonstrate some faith. It's not a, it's not a faithless challenge. She also says, what? but I know now, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, she doesn't quite understand who Jesus is. There are a lot of people in Scripture who could ask God for things and they would give it to him. Some of the prophets in the Old Testament. But Jesus doesn't just correct her, her misstatement about who he is. He says, your brother will rise again. In her response this time, she gets the theology right. She says, I, I know, I, I know at the last day he'll rise again from the dead. There was this debate in Israel at this time. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did. The Pharisees were right, and she, and she understood that. So she understood the theology, and she said, I, I know he's going to rise from, from the dead at, at the last day. But she still was not getting what Jesus was was telling her. Jesus' love for her wasn't limited by her doctrinal understanding. Whether she got the theology right or wrong, Jesus moves toward her, and he describes in words a future promise that's made present for her. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, will live. Whoever believes in me will never die, he says. He describes his his glory, his coming glory, his future glory, but made present for her right there in the moment. I think in in our church tradition, in this particular church, some of you guys are are guests and, and may not know this, we think and talk and worry a lot about doctrine. Uh, we talk about whether something is orthodox or not, that is, whether it's right doctrine or right practice. And don't get me wrong, our doctrine, our theology is important. It provides an anchor for us. But good doctrine doesn't awaken the dead. 
It doesn't give new life. You see, what, what Jesus is saying to, to Martha, what he's saying to us here, and, and I'm going to quote uh, a, a commentator named Leslie, Leslie Newbegin. He says, Resurrection is no longer a mere doctrine. It has a living face and a name. Jesus is himself the presence of life, which is God's gift beyond death. So Jesus, in his presence, the presence that is a gift beyond life, is moving towards Martha. And he's explaining in words what what he's going to do. Now Mary. Mary is different than Martha. Uh, Unlike Martha, who's described as moving and doing and talking, Mary is almost always described as sitting, as stationary. She's the quiet one. So the story from Luke 10, she's sitting at Jesus' feet listening. While Mary goes out, excuse me, while Martha goes out beyond the village gates to meet Jesus, Mary stays at home and is, is sitting and waiting. But she demonstrates a deep faith and a deep devotion um, and a, a worship that's appropriate for who Jesus is. So she has the same complaint that Martha does. She goes out to meet Jesus, and she says the same thing. She says literally the same thing. She says, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. So she's still bringing her question to Jesus. Uh, but I read into this, again, using my imagination, I, I read a different tone than the one Martha had. I read... Why did this have to happen, Lord? Why did my brother have to die? And Jesus' response with Mary isn't words like it was with Martha. He was simply present with her. He's moved to anguish, even anger. He wept with her and for her. So why did Jesus weep? I don't think Jesus wept because he was sad for Lazarus' death. He was friends with Lazarus, but he knew the whole time, he knew Lazarus was going to be risen from the dead. So he wasn't just weeping that he lost his friend. He was weeping because he was stepping into the shoes of his friend. He was getting down into the pit with, with Mary. He cries with her and for her. Again, this is the picture of empathy. Now, all of us carry deep grief within us somewhere. And when we're with others that are experiencing grief and sorrow, our grief comes to the surface. And Jesus was no different. Uh, The prophets described Jesus as one who would be well acquainted with sorrow. And by coming to Judea, coming to Bethany to to perform this miracle, Jesus was starting on the road to his own death. He knew that. He knew he was walking into his own death, honestly. And perhaps more profound than that, he was ushering in a kingdom of light and life in resistance to a kingdom of darkness and death. Darkness and death. Death is terrible. That's why Jesus cries. That's why Jesus is angry. Because death is not what we were meant for. Death is not what Lazarus was meant for. But Jesus doesn't just float above the trouble. 
he gets down in the mess of the trouble with them. But he doesn't just talk to Mary and Martha. He doesn't just get down into their presence. There's substance to his promise. There's substance to what, what he has to offer. It's not just lip service. He puts his money where his mouth is and where his presence is. So I want to continue reading chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. So pause a second. This is very much on brand for Martha. She's concerned about the smell and the cleanliness, right? And she's still not quite getting what Jesus is doing here. She's still intervening. She's trying to protect herself. I'm not sure exactly what what she's thinking, but uh, she's still not quite getting it. Jesus says to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Now, there were some cosmic, grand kingdom reasons that Jesus healed Lazarus. In the book of John, there are seven signs that Jesus does to show he's the Messiah, and this is the climax. This is the culmination. This is the the seventh and ultimate sign that he's the Messiah. And he's heading toward the cross where the kingdom of death and darkness would be destroyed forever. But there's also a very personal reason that he heals Lazarus because he saw his friends, Mary and Martha, hurting. He came into their despair, and he wanted to show them, give them comfort for his glory. And he wanted to show them a way out of of the pit. So, having looked at the story, let's return to those, the two questions that, that I asked at the beginning. How do we receive comfort from Jesus? Looking at the story, How do we receive comfort from Jesus? And then how do we offer comfort for other people? How does Jesus model a way for us to offer comfort to other people? And I I gotta say, this has been a a timely thing for me to study personally. Uh, I I experienced an untimely death in my family, in my own life. My father died when I was 16 and he was only 40. And uh, a counselor recently, uh, within the last month, suggested, asked me to ask myself the question, what did that boy, what did that 16-year-old boy need in that moment? And my gut recently was that that he needed comfort, before I read this, that he needed comfort. 
Um, as a 16-year-old boy, I didn't know how to receive or give comfort. I didn't know how to ask for comfort. Uh, and so now, almost 30 years later, I'm still trying to figure this out. Uh, and I got to say, as I said at the beginning, I'm not comfortable getting down into the pit with people. I have a hard time with people who are experiencing sorrow. And I think it's connected to my, my discomfort with my own sorrow. So uh, I stand here today preaching to you, not as someone who has this figured out, but who's struggling through it. And so uh, I'm going to walk through the, the, some, some tips, some keys that I think uh, come from the scriptures. Uh, but, I, but I speak these as much to myself as I do to you. Um, so what are the keys to receiving God's comfort? What do, what do Mary and Martha do? They, they run to Jesus. They run to him. Mary, Martha sees Jesus outside the gate and she runs to him. Mary hears that Jesus is there looking for her and she, and she goes to him. And they bring their question to Jesus. They bring their question, why did this have to happen? So I want to encourage you, do that. Don't be afraid to, to bring your challenge, your question to Jesus. And you don't have to have everything figured out first. You don't have to have your theology right or your doctrine right. Bring your questions to Jesus openly and honestly. The second thing is that we have to mourn the hardships we face. When you're the one down in the hole, our culture, American culture in particular, uh, there are a lot of ways to avoid feeling the pain of sorrow. There are a lot of distractions available to us. It is way easier to distract myself from feeling something painful than to actually feel something painful. But unless we mourn our losses, unless we feel the pain of the anguish around us, and, and let me just be clear, none of us are immune from sorrow. We all have this somewhere in us, even, even the kids. Uh, you may not have lived life as long as some of the rest of us have, but, but there is sorrow in us because we live in a broken world. Uh, but the Bible promises us, blessed are those who mourn, for they will receive comfort. And the third thing is, can we see the hardships that we face as opportunities to receive God's comfort, as opportunities for God's glory? It's tempting to think, woe is me, why is all, why is all this bad stuff happening to me? But what if we could say, Lord, this is an opportunity for me to receive your comfort? Why did Jesus wait two days before he went to meet Mary and Martha? Did you think that when, you were, when, I, when I read it? So, so he, Jesus hears that his friends that he loves are, are in deep despair, that his friend is sick and is going to die, and he waits two days. And he says it. He's, he's honest about it. At the beginning, he says, This sickness won't end in death. No, this is for God's glory, that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then, and then he tells his disciples, in a, in a part that I didn't read, he says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. So does God allow this suffering to happen just for his glory? So that his works may be displayed to teach a lesson to his disciples? Yes. It's because the joy of knowing him more deeply, and the revelation of his glory in our lives is more important and better 
than the momentary pain we experience. So how do we take that and comfort other people? A couple of points. One, different people need different kinds of comfort. For some, you need to talk to them. They want it. They want to talk through it. Others just want your presence or need your presence. But regardless, we who are emboldened by our own hope in the resurrection, we're free to move toward pain and sorrow, knowing that it's not the end of the story. But we have to be in touch with our own sorrow. And the hope we have of eternal life isn't just that we'll go to heaven at the end, but that there's really relief from the affliction we face. I mean, this is what baptism is about, right? This is what, what David said earlier, that we, we die with Christ and we rise again in our baptism. We, as baptized people, as followers of Jesus, we are marked by the resurrection. Um, so there's a quote as we sort of, as we wrap up here, uh, that I want to read from N.T. Wright. It was, uh, yeah, there it is. Um, and he says this about, about this passage. He says, one of the primary ways that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, works is, of course, through humble, prayerful servants of Jesus, whose hearts have been renewed and whose minds have been enlightened by the powerful gospel, so that they not only believe in Jesus' resurrection and hence in victory, his victory over the dark powers on the cross, but that they become resurrection people, both signs and agents of the new life which will one day flood the whole of creation. If you're united with Christ, you bear something of the resurrection. And in a very real way, your presence with other people is the presence of Christ. So I want to close um, with a story that I think illustrates this well. And it's an example of, by God's grace, a time that I was able to extend comfort. As I said, I, this is not something I'm, I'm good at. Uh, but it had to do with my kids, and I got their permission again before, before I uh, preached today. So about six weeks ago, uh, our, one of our dogs died. And we got two dogs, a mother and a daughter dog, a puppy and a mother dog, in August of last year. And in the second week of February, my kids were walking the two dogs, and one of them darted out in front of a car and, and got hit by the car and died. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, a do- it's a dog, but th- for my kids, this is earth-shattering. This is li- life-altering kind of tragedy for them. Um, they had never experienced death. They had never experienced trauma like this. Fortunately, they'd never experienced trauma like this. Um, and they were totally and completely beside themselves with grief. Like when I picture Mary falling at the feet of Jesus, weeping, like that, that was the picture of the kind of feelings they were having. Um, and there was a beautiful picture of comfort that came from it. First of all, there was comfort from our community. Um, Gigi Obergon, who's back in the nursery, just happened to be walking by when the girls were walking the dogs. And so they were there with a babysitter. Helen and I weren't there. Uh, but Gigi happened to be there walking by and, and gave them a hug when, when they were um, trying to figure out what to do with this. Uh, Tripp and Hannah Averett, who also aren't here, within a, within a, a day of, of this happening, sent a little gift to remind us of the dog that died that, that we... we uh, I, I, that we hung. Oh, Grace is pointing to the Trebish family made cards for our girls. Um, but for me, uh, I was able to, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
go sit with each girl and, and, and ask each of them how they'd experienced it and, and to cry with them. Uh, and I think it was probably powerful for them to see their father cry. Um, but, but each of them needed to process this grief in their own way. A couple of them wanted to talk about it. One of them didn't want to talk about it. Uh, but I think my presence there with them was comforting for them in the moment. And I think they felt comforted by my ministry to them. And the point I'm trying to make isn't what a great dad I am. The point is this, that the Lord loves us even more than I love my girls. And we'll face deeper sorrows than that. They'll face deeper sorrows than that in their lives. But can we bring the childlike faith that they had? Daddy, why did this have to happen? Why did this have to happen? Can we bring that to Jesus with our sorrows? And can we receive the substance of comfort that he offers us? Resurrection. This is a Lenten sermon as much as anything else. We're longing for resurrection. And can we offer that same comfort to our friends, both inside the church and outside the church? Please pray with me. Father, thank you that you are uh, are good and that you love us and that you sent Jesus to be in the pit with us and you've made a path out and you've left the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, with us. Lord, minister to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and help us minister to the hearts of those who are are troubled, who who are afflicted. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.